Hello and welcome to Facing Race. I'm your host, Leila Schultz-Ames. Today I'm going to take a look at an overlooked topic in history, the effects of McCarthyism on Black America. Stay tuned. Okay, so for this week's episode, I really have to thank my husband and loyal listener, Tal, for this idea. And it's a good one. And I think that we don't often talk about how McCarthyism affected the black community. In the years immediately following World War II, the movement for black equality was really rooted in a lot of black workers. And it was really making massive strides. And the McCarthyist anti-communist campaign in the late 1940s really dealt a hammer blow to a lot of those projects, really attacking unions, scattered activists, and it really narrowed the ambitions of a lot of these black freedom movements. So, I mean, I think we can kind of agree the line between race and class is probably one of the most potent fault lines in left politics today. I think there's a sense that a contradiction kind of exists, right, between fighting class inequality and and fighting racial inequality. And sometimes among liberals, this has become an article of faith in a way. And even amongst leftists, I think there's a sense that these are sort of dangerous waters, right? That this special sort of thing, it's, it's almost necessary, right, to navigate them successfully. Um, but it's sort of like you have to tread lightly on it. So, I mean, if you look back, though, in history, it wasn't always like that. In fact, the split between race and class can actually be traced to a very specific moment in American history when the causes of racial and class equality were really sundered. And that movement, that moment, was essentially the Red Scare. And that was in the middle of the 20th century. So a little background, right? Before the Red Scare, there was a movement for Black equality that included the left, most centrally the Communist Party. And based in a lot of these new industrial unions, this movement really fought for Black equality in housing, employment, at the ballot box. And it was really just everything was sort of brought together, this this idea of racial inequality and, and economic struggles. And the anti-communist campaign of the late 1940s, however, really beginning under the Truman administration sort of crippled this movement and it really delayed the fall of Jim Jim Crow by at least a decade. I guess you could even say more. And it really narrowed the movement's focus to legal equality, leaving a lot of its kind of larger ambitions sort of unfulfilled. So in the 1940s, the movement for black equality made its biggest stride since Reconstruction. Uh, in, in 1941, in part thanks to the socialist A. Philip Randolph's March on Washington movement, Franklin Roosevelt actually issued an executive order 8802, which banned discrimination in the defense industry and established a Fair Employment Practices Committee. And it was the first really important federal commitment to civil rights since the 1870s. 
in the courts, the NAACP's legal team won actually a lot of rulings against the white primary system and against a lot of these racially restrictive housing laws. And in just six years, the NAACP actually, according to their website, they went from 50,000 members to 450,000. And one result of this increase was a narrowing of the black-white wage gap at a speed not approached since. I mean, this was really a lot was going on. And at the heart of all of this activity was really this militancy of black working class. And two processes that had had kind of come together, I would say, to enable this. First, you had a lot of technical change in Southern agriculture, and that had pushed Black Americans kind of out of the cotton fields and kind of into the cities. So that actually created a, a, a Black middle class on a scale that had actually never been seen before. And then second, there's a formation of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, or CIO, and that created a union movement that broke, however, and completely with America's kind of labor's historic em- embrace of white supremacy. So in doing research for this episode, I read about different labor movements and organizations. And according to a few articles I read, apparently most CIO unions were to the left of the more conservative American Feder- Federation of Labor when it, came to, when it came to issues of race. And the left most, of course, were the unions in which Com- Communist Party CP members played a leading role. So known kind of as these left-led unions, a lot of these organizations were really ferocious in their assault on racial inequality, whether it was on the factory floor or just general community-based initiatives. In New York City, for example, there was the United Public Workers of America, which was another sort of left-led union that fought for the rights of black public sector workers. And even though a lot of these black public workers were subject to discrimination and segregation, institutions like the post office or the IRS were, a lot of them were kind of engineers of class mobility. And they actually allowed, uh, surprisingly enough, black workers to access levels of job security and and compensation that really were just unheard of at at that time, at least in, in public sectors. So in the years immediately following the end of World War II, organizations kind of had, you know, a lot of them had good reason to believe that Jim Crow and a lot of these kind of American caste system that was, you know, essentially put in place were sort of on its way out. And a movement that spanned from liberal organizations like, of course, the NAACP to the Communist Party and based on a lot of these, you know, hardworking black uh, workers that were were bringing the community together to fight this. A lot of people were mounting a challenge, as I said, to these racial inequalities. And a lot of these pillars of white supremacy, like the white primary, were kind of falling and the federal government was sort of dragged, if you will, inch by inch, super slowly, into sort of opposing a lot of these Jim Crow laws. So within a few years, interestingly, though, many of these organizations leading to this change would be destroyed. And a lot of the activists were essentially demoralized and sort of scattered. And the message was not quite as loud and it was not quite as clear as it used to be. 
so anti-communism in the United States, it actually stretches back at least the American response to the Paris Commune, which was really a distinct wave that gathered strength in the years just after World War II. So the U.S. and the Soviet Union had been allies in the fight against fascism, and they sort of had put this temporary cooler on this red hunting passion, if you will. But after 1945, as the Cold War set in, attacks on American supporters of the USSR came into fashion. And moreover, the end of the war really witnessed a massive strike wave by, by workers whose demands had been really suppressed during the war years. So in 1946, the year right after World War II ended, it was the largest strike wave in American history with more than 5 million workers actually being involved. And employees were eager to kind of regain this upper hand. And so anti-communism was a really key part of this battle. The the anti-communism push really began in, began in earnest in 1947. And that was when Harry Truman, who was president at the time, he signed Executive Order 9835, establishing a loyalty oath program for federal employees. It essentially subjected all 2 million federal workers to investigation into their political beliefs in order to determine whether they were members of or, or even sympathetic to a lot of these so-called sub subversive organizations and those were actually determined by the attorney general's list of organizations and some of those included things like the national negro congress or the council of african affairs so a a lot of truman's anti-communist initiatives gave the signal that red hunting was now an official kind of american pastime if you will And in the House of Representatives, the House Committee on Un-American Activities, HUAC, which actually had, believe it or not, been in existence since the late 30s, really kind of turned up the heat. And at first it started turning its attention to Hollywood. Uh, That was a big thing, especially with FBI head J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, He started hunting down a lot of, you know, so-called communists. Uh, And then that was that was a big, big part of it. And of course, with the Truman loyalty program as well. And they actually increased the the size of the FBI. So it was quite a busy time. And then, of course, we had the entrance of Joe McCarthy, the man who, who would give this movement its name. But he actually was a latecomer to the party. He really didn't get involved until about 1950. So, okay, so what happened and how does this kind of tie into African-Americans? Well, The black left was a major target for this anti-communist network composed heavily of Southerners for whom obviously segregation was part of the American way of life. The CAA and the Civil Rights Congress, which was the successor to the National Negro Congress, were both the targets of investigations and ultimately collapsed under the weight of repression. W.E.B. Du Bois himself, actually, in his 80s at the time, he was arrested. He actually appeared in court in chains for his activism in the global peace movement. And a lot of really important people were were investigated. And 
a lot of these investigations launched by this anti-communist network went far beyond just people like the boy uh, because the communist party and a lot of its fellow fellow travelers had been so central to the movement for racial equality in these years there were a few black activists who had not rubbed shoulders with communists in the course of their work and this was really all the pretext needed for the fbi to kind of launch a full-scale investigation so even black liberals who couldn't possibly have been construed as communists like friends of the roosevelt so mary mcloyd bethune or even congressman adam clayton powell were subject to investigation and a lot of the the wide net of of repression had really a chilling effect if you will on the black community. Um, Liberal organizations like the NAACP really raced to distance themselves from anybody that was sort of tainted by communism, whether that was the local branches or all the way up at the top. Uh, There were black intellectuals and activists who had been really a vital part of this anti- colonial push during and and even before World War II, they now kind of retreated because they didn't want to be caught up in this. And a lot of it was, you know, people were frantically trying to to make sure their name didn't get uh, caught up in all of this. So under the anti-communist assault from a lot of these reactionary right and liberal Democrats, the black left sort of buckled and, and a generation of activists, intellectuals, shop floor militants were basically politically dismembered. And a lot of people were investigated. They were jailed. They were fired. They were blacklisted, deported. Uh, people that made up that movement for racial equality that had really, you know, worked so hard in the the 1940s were essentially being isolated from one another. So the progress towards dismantling the American system of racial domination that had seemed so dramatic just a few years earlier, all of a sudden just ground to a complete halt. There were several important figures from this era, including Paul Robeson. And in April 1949, just as the Cold War was really beginning to intensify, Robeson was an actor, he was a singer and also a civil rights activist who uh, traveled to France to attend the Soviet Union-sponsored Paris Peace Conference. And after singing Joe Hill, which was a famous ballad about a Swedish-born union activist who was actually falsely accused and convicted of murder and ended up being executed in Utah in 1915, Robeson addressed the audience and began speaking really about, you know, issues, well, issues, issues that he often talked about like the lives of black people in the U.S. and sort of different class struggles. And his main point was that World War III was not inevitable, as many Americans, you know, they didn't want to go to war with, with the Soviet Union at the time. Um, but before he took the stage, his speech was somehow or another already transcribed and it was actually sent back to the U.S. by the Associated Press. 
And by the following day, a lot of politicians and editorialists had already branded Robeson as a communist and a traitor, essentially for insinuating that black Americans would not fight in a war against the Soviet unions, uh, Union. And so historians, you know, now and, and later on, they kind of discovered that that he had actually been misquoted, but the damage had already been instantly done. And before he was even out of the country, he actually was unaware of a lot of the firestorm that was brewing back home over the speech. And that was kind of the beginning of the end for Robeson. He, and essentially, he would be declared the Kremlin's voice of America, um, actually by a witness at, at hearings by the, the House of Un-American Activities Committee. And uh, they actually ended up having this big hearing. Um, it was chaired by John Wood, who was a Georgia Democrat at the time. And they summoned the baseball star Jackie Robinson to Washington. And Robinson was very, I guess, reluctant to come. He did end up denouncing Robinson's views and was essentially persuaded to tell a country that, of course, Robinson did not uh, speak, uh, Robinson did not speak on behalf of black Americans. And I should also add that both of these figures, both both Robinson and Robeson, had really important sports connections. Robeson first became famous as an All-American football player at Rutgers University, and white Americans kind of expected black athletes to be seen and not heard. And in the age of Jim Crow, black athletes like Robeson and later Robinson came to be viewed as symbols of the country's sort of I guess you could say barometer of of racial progress. And a lot of the rules for black athletes were never really simple. But everyone understood that they were expected to perform. They weren't expected to question the system that allowed them to play. And they were really strongly discouraged from disrupting the social order. And that's a lesson that obviously Colin Kaepernick learned when he first took a knee during the national anthem. And when blacks used their platform to kind of confront racial injustice, a lot of critics kind of dumped on them. They questioned their love for America and they suggested that they should leave the country. So one could argue that both men, actually all three men, were essentially blackballed from the profession and really barred from performing because they defied the political boundaries imposed upon black athletes and entertainers. Robeson's passport was revoked and an 85 of his planned concert in the, concerts in the U.S. were actually canceled. Uh, some in the press were calling for his execution. Later that summer in, in civil rights-friendly Westchester County, New York City, at one concert that was not canceled, uh, anti-communist groups and KKK started shouting racial epithets. They actually attacked concert goers with baseball bats and rocked rocks and they they just really things got really out of control so you know here's a man who had really exemplified american upward mobility he kind of became public enemy number one and he wasn't even the leading black spokesman of the day you know but a lot of people kind of said oh this is you know this man is a black stalin you know and, and other other nicknames are really cost him his success so obviously uh, and of course too he wasn't the only one but he was definitely somebody that took a lot of heat 
so in looking at all of this, what was the legacy then? What what came about? So, I mean, when civil rights insurgency broke out once more, most dramatically with the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955, the politics animating it were different from those of the earlier wave. Old left veterans were everywhere in the civil rights movement from Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, organizer E.D. Nixon, who was in Montgomery, to Southern Christian Leadership Conference's Jack O'Dell, who actually came out of the CP. But their old commitment to remaking the American political economy was no longer a defining characteristic of that movement. The nature of racial oppression itself had been redefined at the height of the Cold War. While even, you know, many liberals in the 1930s and the 1940s had agreed that racial inequality was really intimately bound up with the structure of economic power in American life, the anti-communist crusade had made these sorts of critiques politically radioactive. Instead, a lot of these liberal intellectuals like Gunnar Madrell or Harry S. Ashmore kind of redefined racial inequality and really changed the message of the movement. So really a lot happened and really a lot of these these issues that at one time were linked together with class inequality and workers' rights and, and racial inequality, these issues that were so close tied together now we came to completely separate things okay it's time for that part of the episode it's time for ask a black friend okay so recently the conversation came up with a friend of mine about the COVID pandemic and about how a lot of businesses are closing, particularly in the U.S. with this recent wave and this recent increase of cases. And so the question was, why is it important to support Black-owned businesses? Well, I I think that Black-owned businesses often need a lot more support. I mean, certainly now living through this global pandemic, we know that it has disproportionately affected black people and people of color in general, but really it's also affected small black owned businesses. And I actually saw a report from the National Bureau of Economic Research, and they said that the number of African American business owners actually plummeted from 1.1 million in February of this year to about 640,000 in April. So that basically means, okay, math is in my my strong suit, but that basically means that around 41% of Black-owned businesses in the U.S. actually went under in the wake of COVID-19. So I think by diverting purchasing power to more Black-owned businesses, you're not only helping to strengthen local Black economies, It can also contribute to shrinking the racial wealth gap, foster more job creations for black people. I think it also helps to hold a lot of these larger companies accountable in regards to diverse representation. And I think that it's important for people to obviously support their local businesses, not just ones that are owned by black people, but I think really just shopping locally, I think it's really easy, and I put myself in this category too, to sometimes just order things on Amazon and boom, you get it two, three days later. But, 
you know, a lot of it is about coming together and I think it's about helping each other. And I think I remember watching, I think it was a Killer Mike special on Netflix where he talked about how in the Asian communities, particularly in Chinese communities, the dollar actually stays in those communities. Uh, whereas for black Americans and, and most of us, the dollar doesn't stay in the black community because not only are non-black people not always supporting black businesses, but even black people, even ourselves, we're not really supporting uh, black businesses. So I think it's, yeah, I think it's important to try and shop locally and also try to to help those that have been really affected by uh, everything that's that's been going on with the with the pandemic. So um, that's pretty much today's episode. I do, of course, want to end with a quote. And today's quote is from the writer and activist James Baldwin, who actually spent nearly a decade, believe it or not, in Turkey, in part to sort of get away from the Red Scare and a lot of civil rights issues in the U.S. And he said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And I think that's really especially true. And I think that's especially uh, the way the way we have to look at things when it comes to racial inequality or sexism or class struggles or anything like that. Everything needs to be faced and we can't really make changes until we actually acknowledge it and we face what's going on. So really important words. So that's all for today. Thank you so much for joining and I hope to see everybody next week.